I'll please have open before you this passage that we read in Daniel chapter 4. Whenever I read this chapter in Daniel, I am reminded of the American billionaire Howard Hughes at age 45. He was one of the most glittering men in America. He, he courted actresses, he, he flew airplanes, he worked on uh, top secret CIA contracts. And if you've seen the film, you'll be familiar with some of that. I'm sure most of it's true anyway. He owned a string of, of hotels across the world and he even had his own airline, TWA, to fly him around the world. And 20 years later, age 65, Hughes still had loads of money, $2.3 billion, in fact. But the world's richest man had become one of the most wretched. He lived permanently in a small, dark room at the top of one of his hotels without sun and without joy. And he spent most of his time watching films often the same one, over and over again, as many as 150 times. He was unkempt, his beard was down to his waist, his hair was well down his back, and his fingernails were two inches long. He looked more like an animal than a human being, often not wearing any clothes in his hotel room because he was paranoid about germs. His story is a tragedy with no happy ending because within a few years he died, never rising from the depths to which he had fallen. And our story this evening also follows a man who fell from great heights and ended up for years like an animal with long hair and long nails. But in God's mercy, Nebuchadnezzar's story ended very differently. From being brought so low, he was raised up high to even greater glory and honour than he had before. Because this story that we read here in Daniel chapter 4 is really the story of his conversion. It is his personal testimony because the narrator shifts in this chapter from Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. It's the king from verse 1 who is now speaking. The audience he addresses is, is the same audience that the, that the herald spoke to in the last chapter. Once Nebuchadnezzar commanded everyone to bow down to his image, and now he wants everyone to bow down to God. It's nothing short of a transformation. From the tyrant who threw Daniel's friends into the blazing furnace to this man, because Nebuchadnezzar has been converted. Back in chapter 2, he saw that God was a great revealer of mysteries when he saw that only Daniel was able to reveal the dream that he had had. He saw in chapter 3 that, that God was a great rescuer, rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the blazing furnace. But here in this chapter, he finally sees that God rules. You see, at the end of the last chapter, God was still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's God. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't bowed his knees or bent his proud heart before this God until now, that is. Up until now, we've all heard what God has done for Daniel. 
and for Daniel's three friends. But now Nebuchadnezzar wants us to hear, verse 2, what God has done for him. The signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. It is his personal testimony. You see, every Christian has a personal testimony. For most of us, it's probably nothing like as, as dramatic as Nebuchadnezzar's. But the crux of it is, is the same. It's not an observation of how God has dealt with other people, but how God has dealt with me. And it's being able to speak about the wonderful miracle that God has, has performed in your life and about the great change that has come about in your life as a result. And I wonder, do, do you have a story like that this evening? If you come to see and acknowledge that there is one true God, and have you bowed the knee to him? Have you changed like Nebuchadnezzar did? We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's story this evening, the story of his conversion. And we're going to look at it under three headings. The first is this, the beginning of his conversion. And it's interesting to note that it began with anxiety. Here he was, the, the emperor of Babylon, a man who, who had it all. He had great power and he had authority. He, he spoke and, and everyone listened. He commanded and everyone jumped. He was the king who could have people chopped into pieces and their houses turned into, into piles of rubble if they didn't do what he said. So who could touch him? He was rich and he was powerful and he had everything that he wanted. He had a palace where we read in verse 4 that he was, he was contented and he was flourishing, wasn't he? He was prosperous and yet, verse 5, he was afraid. He had a dream which made him afraid. He was the most powerful man in the world and yet he was troubled by a dream. He'd had a dream before, of course, back in, in chapter 2, a dream God had given him to, to show him what would happen to him in, in days to come. That dream told him that as big and as powerful as he was, that he was just a mist that would one day disappear. His kingdom would vanish and would be replaced by another. In fact, we know, don't we, that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. The only kingdom that would last would not be a kingdom made by human hands but by the king, by the god of heaven that same god who had made nebuchadnezzar what he was and given him everything that he had that dream had troubled him too if you remember but then daniel had interpreted that dream and nothing bad had happened to him he was still king and so he put that dream behind him and he carried on as normal as people tend to do, until this dream troubled him again. You see, this chapter reminds us, doesn't it, how, how easily our peace can be shattered. You know, it is a sign, however uncomfortable it may be, and it is uncomfortable, it is a sign of God's mercy when he brings anxiety to trouble our little empires and disrupt our godless contentment. Trouble and fear can be 
God's way of knocking on the door of our hearts, can't it? You see, outwardly, perhaps not to the extent of Nebuchadnezzar, but outwardly, you and I know many people who seem to have it all. But they don't have any peace in their hearts. Perhaps that's even some of you tonight. Augustine famously said, didn't he, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. It's a sign of God's mercy that he didn't leave Nebuchadnezzar alone, but he gave him another dream and that he gave him Daniel to interpret it. You see, there's almost a sense of relief here, isn't there, in in verse 8, in the way Nebuchadnezzar tells his story. Um, What does it say here in the New King James? Uh, Where are we? Verse 8. Over the page, I'll find it. At last, Daniel came before me, it says. At last, Daniel came in. Thank goodness for Daniel. Daniel is a breath of fresh air. Finally, here is someone who can give the king answers. And Daniel isn't afraid to tell the king uh, the meaning of his dream. He gives him unwelcome but necessary news, like a like to doctor giving giving a terrible diagnosis, doesn't he? Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar already suspected it, but Daniel tells him straight in verse 22. He says, it is you, O king, who have grown strong, uh, grown and become strong. You are that tree, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the hammer blow, isn't it? It's a bit like Nathan when he he comes to to David after his adultery with Bathsheba and he says clearly to him, you are that man. I wonder if you ever feel the finger of God pointing at you. I remember clearly before I was a a Christian visiting a church one, one Sunday and hearing the preacher speak about the foolish man who built his house on sand. And every word was like a a hammer on my heart as the preacher asked what I was building my life on. I was convinced afterwards that um, he'd picked that sermon just for me. He hadn't. He was preaching through a series, but it spoke to me. That man became my father-in-law in the end. But that was a hammer blow on my heart. Do you hear God's voice speaking to you today? If you do, do not harden your heart, the psalmist says. You see, the beginning of conversion is an awareness that all is not well with us. We are to thank God for the anxious thought that shakes our complacency or the event that rocks our world. Because this is God knocking on our hearts. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we're to thank God even more, aren't we, for his servants who tell us straight what our problem is, like my father-in-law did in that sermon so long ago. You see, Daniel takes no pleasure here in giving Nebuchadnezzar this unwelcome news. The NIV in verse 19 says he couldn't speak for a while because he was perplexed. That word literally means appalled. 
Daniel is terrified, not, not of Nebuchadnezzar, but he is terrified of what God has said he will do. He is appalled by the awful realisation of God's judgment. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies, he says. He is not gloating over this message. Instead, he is deeply moved by what it means for the king. You know, Robert Murray McShane, uh, young Church of Scotland minister in the 1800s, who died in his 20s. He met up with his friend, uh, Andrew Bonner. You've probably heard the story one Monday morning. And he asked him what he'd been preaching on the day before. And on hearing that his friend had preached on the subject of hell, McShane said to him, but did you preach it with tears? You see, God's servants take no pleasure in telling bad news. It is a hard word that we have to bring sometimes, but we tell it because we have to. Because like Daniel here, we love the lost and we long for them to change. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had the opportunity to change here. This was God knocking on his door again to lead him to repentance. It was the beginning of conversion. But like the dream before, Nebuchadnezzar ignored it. You see, to see what conversion really is, we have to wait another year. And only then do we see the essence of his conversion. Nebuchadnezzar's big problem, as far as God is concerned, was that he was a proud man. He had other sins too, of course, no doubt about that. He was idolatrous. He worshipped other gods. He had idols like that huge one that that he made in in the previous chapter. He filled his life with all sorts of gods that, that took the place of the real God. He was also, no doubt about it, an evil man, wasn't he? He threw Daniel's friends into a fiery furnace. He had a fierce and an uncontrollable anger ordering that furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal and threatening to chop people into pieces and to bulldoze their houses at the drop of a hat. He was a wicked and an evil man, but his biggest problem from God's perspective was that he was a proud man. We see that back in uh, the previous uh, chapters, don't we, when that enormous gold image that he made, that everyone was to bow down to. We've seen it in in the power that he claimed for himself when he, he made himself higher than God, when he said, what God can rescue you from my hand? Because he thought he was the king, the emperor over all. What God can rescue you from my hand? He said to Daniel and his friends, and we see it here, 12 months later, as he stands on the roof of his palace, And he surveys his empire and he says, Is this, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honour of my majesty? You see, pride is all about self, isn't it? Pride is all about me, myself and I. When we're at the centre of our universe 
And it's all about our achievements. And there were achievements. Let's not, let's not knock it. There were achievements. As he stood on his palace roof, he would have been able to see that the city walls that historians tell us were 40 feet wide. Big enough for four horse chariots to pass each other. That's pretty, pretty impressive if you're building a city and a fortress. He would have been able to see the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But his problem is that he was proud of them as his achievements. He didn't give glory to God. And this is us by nature. Someone gave me a book once called Humility. And I wondered if they were trying to tell me something. Perhaps they were. I think pride is one of those awful things that is in every single one of us. And it's probably the last thing ever to go. This is us by nature, isn't it? We're not emperors, but we're all Nebuchadnezzar. We all fill our lives with, with idols that take the place of God. We all give our affections to the gods of pleasure and money and, and success, the gods of materialism and, and popularity and how many likes we get on Facebook, how many friends you've got on Facebook. It's all pride. We all have evil hearts. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus said it's out of the heart that our sins come. And we are all prone to look at our achievements, to look at our nice home, to look at our good job, to look at our family and to be proud of what a good job we have done. But God says he will not give his glory to another. But you know, the biggest problem with our pride is that it keeps us from coming to God. Pride says, I'm not a sinner and I don't need a saviour. But the Bible says we're all sinners and we all need to be saved. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's while the words were still on his lips that Nebuchadnezzar was cut down. And it was only when he was cut down that he came to acknowledge God for who he is. You see, he had to be humbled. He had to be reduced. He had to be brought to his knees because this is the essence of conversion. Do you remember in the parable that Jesus told the proud Pharisee thought God was pleased with him, that he was religious and he, he fasted twice a week. He gave money to charity and like us, he was a good person. He wasn't an adulterer and he wasn't a robber. And so he thought he was okay with God. Whereas the tax collector said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was the tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven because he was so ashamed of his sin, who Jesus said went home right with God that day. Can I ask you tonight, have you ever said that? 
Have you ever said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? You see, what really matters this evening is not if you've been confirmed or baptised or if you've ever taken communion, but if you've been cut down. Conversion is about being cut down before God, thoroughly stripped of our pride, as this tree is thoroughly stripped here in verse 14, and brought to our knees before God as we see our need of him and as we repent of our sins. If you ever humbled yourself before God in that way? Have you ever seen yourself as Nebuchadnezzar finally saw himself as a worm before Almighty God? You know, I remember reading Lloyd-Jones and his, his commentary on, on the Sermon of the Mount once, and I was struck. I was a young believer at that time, and I remember Lloyd-Jones talking about how we are despicable. And I thought, boy, that's a bit strong, isn't it? Despicable. Have you ever seen yourself as a worm before Almighty God? You see, the big point of this chapter is the message of verse 17. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. That the living may know that you and I who are alive tonight may know that the most high rules and is sovereign that message is repeated again in verse 25 and again in verse 32 conversion is about acknowledging God as sovereign in our lives or as it says in verse uh, 26 heaven rules heaven rules God is in charge not us know that the Lord is God says the psalmist he is Lord and we must bow before him you know, the story is told of the funeral of uh, Louis the 14th he'd requested that at his service in, in Notre Dame the whole cathedral should be dark except for one candle on his casket at the front but when the court preacher Massillon got up to give the funeral address, very dramatic this, he went over to that casket and he snuffed out the candle. There began his message with this, these words, only God is great. Only God is great. You see, that is what we must do too, mustn't it? We must snuff out our candle as far as our lives are concerned, we all want to direct our own show and call our own shots. But this passage tells us that God rules. He's not just going to rule in the future. He rules now. He rules, verse 17, the kingdom of men. In other words, he rules here and now over this world and over our government and over your life. And God calls us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to turn from self and from sin and to turn to him. It's a very simple thing at the end of the day. We just need to appeal, verse 34, 
to heaven. You know, we can't be sure, really, from this passage, we can't be sure how long this madness lasted. Seven times, it says here in your version, possibly uh, seven years. Or how, we don't know how long this lasted, living as an animal rather than living as God intended. But in the end, Nebuchadnezzar was brought to his senses by a simple appeal to heaven. And the reason he didn't do it earlier was because he wasn't low enough. Mm. Only when we're low enough will we stop looking down and be forced to look up instead. We have to get low enough first. The beginnings of conversion, the essence of conversion. Our time's almost gone. Lastly, very briefly, the result of conversion. How can you tell... How can you tell if you are converted this evening? Well, verse 37 tells us what the converted do. They now praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven. Is that you this evening? Is that what you do in your heart and from your heart? Do you have a story to tell about how God has humbled you and brought you to plead with heaven? As you look back over how God has dealt with you, perhaps for some of you decades, for others not so long, are you able to rejoice this evening and say everything he does is right and all his ways are just? He is a changed man, isn't he here? Nebuchadnezzar is a changed man. He puts his conclusion first in this chapter and he ends where he began with praise for God. It is now his pleasure to tell people how great God is because the result of conversion is a thankful heart that just wants to speak God's praise. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, said Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who humble themselves, for they will be exalted. You see, Nebuchadnezzar went from being a giant of a man to an ant. But God raised him higher in the end with even greater glory than he had before. And even that is a picture of what God promises every believer in the end. He raises you from the ash heap to sit with princes. He raises you from the lowest pit to undeserved glory. You know, this story should be an encouragement to us. If a violent and ungodly and wicked man like Nebuchadnezzar could be converted, then anyone can. Even Putin some parallels aren't there don't give up praying for people you know who don't yet know God as their Lord and Saviour and if you are a believer here tonight then be a Daniel to them give them God's word straight tell it to them tell them to turn from their sins and that God will have mercy on them. Remember, God cut the tree down 
But in his mercy, he didn't kill it. (laughs) And tell them all these things in love. Remember McShane's words to Andrew Bonner. Tell it in love. As you remember, as I remember, that it's only God's grace that brought us into the kingdom first. But if this isn't your story tonight, there is still time to write your name in it. It begins where it began with Nebuchadnezzar, with fear. The fear of the Lord, says Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. May God help us all tonight to fear and to bow before him. Amen.